0: Patricide is a term that describes the atrocious act of killing one's own father. In many cultures and religions, it's considered as one of the worst sins man could commit, and rightfully so, isn't it? It's betrayal in its worst forms. Despite how terrible a person's father may be, to take the life of the very person who gave him life uh, resonates in us that something horribly wrong and wicked is taking place. Even the thought of it makes us uneasy. Nevertheless, patricide is not uncommon uh, in many religions and cultures in history, especially in royal families. When greed for power and authority is instilled in a man, it seems nothing will stop him from getting what he wants. So take, for example, recently in May of 2020, a 32-year-old man from Long Island was charged with second-degree murder after fatally stabbing his 72-year-old father more than a dozen times while he was on a video Zoom call. The details are too graphic, like something out of a horror movie, so I will spare you from the details. And I wasn't able to find any follow-up stories of the motives of why this man, to the shock of many of his neighbors, committed such an appalling uh, sick crime. But such a story serves as somewhat of a dramatic background in which our psalm this afternoon is based. Except in the context of our passage... The murderous plot of the son attempting to kill his father wasn't seemingly a random act of psychotic spontaneity, but in our passage, rather, it took years of plotting and scheming and colluding. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms, and I've been encouraging us as a church to set a precedent for our church to read the entire book of Psalms each summer. So, 50 short chapters each month June, July, and August. And if you still haven't started, you have three days left in June, and you can read 16 chapters a day for the next three days, and you can catch up, and then read chapters, one and two chapters for the month of July and August at a slower pace. Or you can just divide 150 divided by 64 days of summer left, which means you could just read about two and a half, three chapters in the remaining days all summer, which is not bad at all. How many guys have started this and are committing to this? Okay, forget I asked. Okay, today's a good day to start. The book of Psalms teaches us how to praise God. Whether you are in the pits or in the heights, the Psalms have been the hymn book for God's people for generations. For us to look to God, for us to trust in Him alone, for us to praise Him no matter what circumstances or seasons of life the people of God may face. And the authors of the Psalms are very clear. The reason why we can do that, we can praise God in whatever circumstances of life, is because God has promised the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the good news is uh, for us that He has already come, fulfilling the promised and the prophecies told in the Old Testament, and that we have hope by grace through faith that Jesus the Christ is indeed coming again for those who are His. Amen? We as Christians don't believe in some abstract Savior that is out there. What we're doing here is not fiction. It's not fanaticism. No way. 2,000 years of Christian history around the globe, across all cultures, against all odds, against all persecution, against all attempts to shut down and censure or ban and burn. This very book couldn't stop this religion, could it? Christianity prevails on. There is no comparison to the other religions of this world. The grass withers, the Bible says. The flowers fade. Man's laws and governmental policies and cultures and societies, trends and fads change. But the Word of God is unbound. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He is the only constant. He is the only reliable, unchanging truth in this universe. He's what holds this universe together and He is what is holding you and me today. The fact that you are here this afternoon is no coincidence, brothers and sisters, friends. It is the fact that God has a word for you. God has a word for you. God desires to speak to you this afternoon, so listen very closely. This afternoon in Psalm 3, in what is the official first chapter of book one of five books or five large sections of Psalms, we see how God's people ought to worship God even in the midst of deep distress. In David's case, even amid imminent death threats. Psalm 3, though specifically relates to David in a particularly difficult situation, it serves us generally in teaching us important lessons regarding the awesome salvation, the great salvation we have in our God. Can I clue you in on the main theme of the psalm? It's found in the last verse of the the passage, which is the title of the sermon today, Salvation Belongs to Our God. You'll see that in this short psalm, the Hebrew word Yeshua translated salvation or save is mentioned three times in verses 2, 7, and 8. So what is the psalmist teaching us about the great salvation we have in God? That's the question that I want us to answer. What is the psalmist teaching us about the great salvation we have in God? I'm sorry, somebody took away the little clip that was on this mic, so I'm touching the mic. I apologize and I pray that it won't bother you too much. Psalm 3 is known by many as a morning psalm in companion to Psalm 4, which is known as an evening psalm, reminding us, modeling for us, teaching us how as God's children that apart from His sovereign help, from morning to evening, every moment of our lives, we as sinful human beings have absolutely no chance whatsoever against the onslaught of threats and hardships of this broken world. So this afternoon from Psalm 3, I want to share with you four lessons of God's salvation. Four lessons of God's salvation. Here's the outline so you can follow. Guilt that laments, verses 1 and 2. Confidence that humbles, verses 3 through 4. Trust that sustains, verses 5 through 6. And victory that blesses, verses 7 and 8. Guilt that laments, confidence that humbles, trust that sustains, victory that blesses. I pray that as we meditate on the truths of God's salvation that you would be reminded anew of the great assurance and security we alone as the people, as the children of God can enjoy in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Look with me now to Psalm 3 and follow along as I read from the ESV translation. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are arising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Selah. What is the salvation we have in God? Point number one guilt that laments. Guilt that laments from verses one to two. Look with me to those verses again, including the heading. It says this. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. The context of the psalm as noted from its inspired heading, this is not somebody that wrote it in later, right? This is inspired heading. And the context is from 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. Psalm 3 is one of the 13 psalms, 73 in total that David authored, but one of 13 that includes historical details directly from the Old Testament scriptures. Whereas in Psalm 1, the metaphorical wicked sinners counseled together against the blessed man. Whereas in Psalm 2, the nations and the kings of the earth raged and plotted in vain against God. Here in Psalm 3 is an actual historical example of how the people conspired against the Lord's anointed. Without having read the whole story, that short phrase of the heading captures the intensity and explains so much of the drama of the psalm already, doesn't it? A psalm of David, a lyrical poem or a song by the shepherd boy who once defeated the giant Goliath by God's help now turned God's anointed king of Israel. When he fled from Absalom, it's a song of distress. It's a psalm of desperation. It was in a moment of fight-or-flight response. And the clincher, the punch in the mouth, if you will, the phrase, his son. Absalom was not just any enemy who was pursuing him, but David's very own son, more specifically, his third son. More exactly, not just any son, a son David felt great love and emotion towards, according to 2 Samuel 18, verse 5 and 33. Go back and read these chapters because it will allow you to feel the force of it much stronger. Some commentators say that Absalom was actually David's favorite son. Well, what caused such a son, Absalom, to attempt a coup by murdering his own father? This is messed up, isn't it? If you've not had the chance to read this story in advance, I encourage all of you to do so to help you appreciate, really, the intensity and the details of what this psalm entails. I promise it's way better than any Netflix drama you'll see. The complexity, the scandal of the story is sure to lure you in in a good way and keep you on your toes in suspense, and you can enjoy the story entirely guilt-free since it's the Word of God. Anyone who thinks the Bible is boring haven't read the Scriptures. Anyways, the context tells us an alluring tragedy that started this whole story. As I mentioned, it's a bit complex, so try to follow along. There's a lot of drama here. Back in 2 Samuel 11, we know how God's chosen king... The man after God's own heart David at the height of his power and conquest which you can read about in 2nd Samuel chapter 6 through 10 had a moment of stumbling when he committed a great sin against God by taking another man's wife and her name was Bathsheba. And not only that, David, King David, attempts to hide his sin by craftily murdering her husband Uriah by conveniently putting him up in the front lines of the battle. Well, the Lord confronts David through prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and Nathan relays to David that because he has despised the word of the Lord and has done evil in God's sight, Nathan says, the sword shall never depart from your house. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11 through 12, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives and the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. <laughs> There's a lot of drama right there in those verses, and in order for you to understand, you've got to read the context, okay? Because if you read more later of what happens, you're going to be shocked, and it's going to just amaze you of why God does and says what he says right there. Well, to that, to that judgment, David rightly and immediately repents. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nevertheless, although David's sins are forgiven and his life is spared, the next chapters tells of the devastating consequences and the fallout of David's sin. Let me just pause right there and remind us, every person in this room, that every single sin that we commit has consequences. What you think is done in secret is not hidden from God. That is the stupidity of sin, as I shared with you from last week's Psalm 2. Us thinking that we can get away with sin. Sin, although temporarily, may bring pleasure, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. It certainly enslaves. The Bible says sin is not only a rebellion against God, but it's worshiping and submitting to the enemies of God, the flesh, the world, and Satan. Simply, we as human beings were created to worship something And if we're not worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the Creator and Lord of the universe, we are worshiping ourselves. Get that straight. We are worshiping the world to please others, to please men and women. And we are subjecting ourselves to the destructive deception of the devil because the devil knows that God is the God of truth and of life and of true freedom. The devil doesn't want anything to do with God, you see. The devil doesn't want anything to do with truth and freedom and life, you see. John 10.10 clearly tells us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Maybe you're saying, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe that Bible stuff. Well, if you don't believe in the words of Scripture, listen to the experiences and testimonies of thousands upon thousands of men and women who chased after carnal and, and worldly satisfaction, sex, drugs, alcohol, money, power, and pleasure. There is no happiness there, ultimately. There is no lasting peace there, finally. Nothing but regret nothing but loss, nothing but greater confusion, nothing but but brokenness, nothing but condemnation, shame, guilt, bondage, and what's worse, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. Why? Because you're saying, I choose my own consequences. I don't want to do nothing with that grace and mercy of God. You're choosing whatever that comes at the end, "I'll I'll, I'll choose it for myself. That's what you're saying. You're rejecting the Lord's Savior and grace that comes from him. Such were the consequences that David had to face because of his sins, you see. And the shameful, sinful trend continued downward in his family. We see the shameful apostasy of Solomon, his son, the wisest king to ever live, the apostasy. He departed the faith, the wisest man to ever live. And we see in 2 Samuel 13 how Amnon, David's first son, lusted after his half-brother Absalom's sister Tamar. And what happens is so scandalous by even today's cable TV standards that I'm not going to tell you, but to tell you to just read it later at your own time. But what is germane to this psalm is that Absalom takes upon it himself to execute justice for his sister Tamar and murders his brother Amnon, which is also abhorrent and scandalous, which is the reason why Absalom, in fear, flees Jerusalem from the presence of the king. And that's why he has to stay away. There's a lot of intricate details and complex emotions in the story. For example, 2 Samuel 13, 39 says, And the spirit of the king David longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. You see, David had affection for his son Absalom. Now, I don't have space to explain all the details, so be sure to read about it. But the story goes, three years later, King David is convicted to bring back his young son Absalom back to Jerusalem, but Absalom is unable or is not allowed to come into the king's presence for another two years. Well, that's when things begin to turn for the worse because as Absalom was dwelling in Hebron, just 25 miles from Jerusalem, he begins to think to himself, how great it would be if he were the king himself. So let's turn back to 2 Samuel 15 briefly and read verses one through six to give you some more context. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him And Absalom used to rise early uh, and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you from? And when he said, Your servant is such and such, a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss it as if he himself were the king. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And here's the clencher again. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see, Absalom was a very handsome and likable man. It says in 2 Samuel 14, just a chapter before, Verse 25, it says this, Now in all of Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish, not even a zit, not even a pimple in him. That's quite the resume, isn't it? There was no one in Israel as handsome as Absalom. From his feet to his head, he was perfection. People were naturally attracted to him. That's why it says in verse 6 of chapters 15, so Absalom stole the hearts of men of Israel. Instead of pointing people to the king to execute justice, he took it upon himself and became the judge, and he took credit for it, and he loved it. And there began the ploy to usurp his father's throne, which we'll read about in the rest of chapters 15 through 18. But to summarize the point, 2 Samuel 15 at the end of verse 12 says, and the conspiracy grew and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Well, what was David thinking all while this was happening? The man after God's own heart caught off guard, uh, uh, discouraged because his son was coming after him. Was he simply blindsided by his son? Why didn't David at the height of his kingship shut all that stuff down and take back charge and crush his oppressors? Why not? I think the psalm is teaching us a great lesson about salvation, about Yeshua in God alone. It teaches us that as great as King David was, he wasn't the anointed king in Zion on God's holy hill that we read about in Psalm 2. Even as an earthly anointed king as David was, David was simply incapable of saving himself from his own sins. The great David himself wasn't the blessed man of Psalm 1 And the tragic fallout of his sins had maimed his judgments, stifled his wisdom, put fear in his heart. The accusations of the devil that God had abandoned him and that he didn't deserve God's blessing because of sin was simply too much for David to bear. Isn't that true of us sometimes? All the time, perhaps. Sin blinds us. Sin stupefies us. Sin weakens our faith and our confidence in God gnawing away at whatever joys and satisfaction that we have in him. Sin literally sucks the life away from us. That's why addicts are never satisfied with the same dose. They want more and more and more and more, but it still doesn't give them that same high. It was true that David, who was just a few years ago, maybe a few weeks ago, maybe a few days ago, was at the height of his power, who conquered kings and ruled nation overnight. What happens? Becomes a fugitive. What a picture of the fleeting security and stability of earthly treasures and earthly authority and earthly companions, you see. Nothing lasts on earth, friends. No matter what heights one thinks they've reached on earth, no matter how much money you think you amounted, no matter what those things are on earth, they are entirely unreliable. They are entirely fallible. They are entirely diminishable. What David felt and experienced firsthand is entirely possible that it could all be taken away from us. What a reminder. But here's the difference between the countless men and women who fell to their demise and fell victim to their sins, who got eaten up alive literally by the appetites of their own flesh, some men and women who never cry out for help, some men and women who dig themselves into their own graves by plunging themselves deeper into their appetites and carnal desires, they don't turn to God. They don't cry out to God, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But David, David is known by God. And David knows God. And David teaches us what a man who knows in God's salvation does. David teaches us about the Lord's sovereign salvation. That despite his failures, despite his guilt and shame, that he can cry out to God, that he can call on God. Amen? You'll notice in your reading of 2 Samuel 15-19 through that David's enemies never really say there is no salvation for him, for David in God. So why does uh, David make this so spiritual? Why Why doesn't David just simply opt for diplomacy, for immunity, for a cordial conversation with his beloved son? Why doesn't he do that? Because David knew this wasn't a matter necessarily between him and Absalom alone. This is why David prays in another psalm, in Psalm 51, verse four, which is his prayer of repentance after the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. David confesses, "Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." And that's why David is still yet crying out to God. David wasn't afraid of the consequences he would face. His only concern was that God's will will be done, despite. Him. That's why it says in 2 Samuel 15 26, David says, But if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Psalm 3 teaches us an important first lesson about salvation. That salvation in God is not that we will be free from temptation, that salvation in God is not that we will be free from sinning. That salvation in God is not that we will not experience the consequences and the brokenness of our sin. That salvation in God is not that we will not experience brokenness of our own failures and the brokenness of the greed and envy and attack and harm from other people to us, but that salvation in God is the promise that even in our guilt and our shame, God will hear our prayers for help. Amen? The people of this world are crying out to the things of this world, satisfy me, fulfill me, but no one heard and no one answered. But for the children of God, we cry out and God Hears our prayers. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says, I have often heard persons say in prayer, Thou art a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. But the expression contains a superfluity. Since for God to hear is according to Scripture the same thing as to answer. The hearing God is an answering God. The fact that David cried out to God in lament, in his shameful guilt and fear, is a fact that God would answer his prayers, that God would in fact indeed certainly save him from all of his enemies, that in the end God will rescue his children from the greatest and most awful punishment from himself for those who reject his grace through his son, eternal condemnation and wrath of God and separation from God. So brothers and sisters, when you are experiencing the agony of guilt and shame, let it lead you to lament. Let it lead you to him not from him. Isn't that the common experience that people do when they are falling into sin? They run from God. They leave the church. When God invites us, when through Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Run to God, brothers and sisters, if you are experiencing the agony of guilt and shame. That's the first lesson David teaches us about salvation through Psalm 1. Point number two, what is salvation? These are much shorter points. What is salvation? Confidence that humbles confidence that humbles. Verses three and four. Look with me to uh, verses three and four. It says this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Notice the drastic contrast in David's prayer as he turns his gaze from himself to God, from those who are pursuing him, his son, to God who is his God, as he recalls God's promises and who God is, the covenant-keeping God, David, in complete contrast, shouts this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David says, you are the one who absorbs all the blows that are aimed at me. You are the one who blocks all the attacks and arrows from the front and from the behind. You are a shield about, around me. When my own son is stabbing me in the back, You are the one who has my back. Hallelujah. David says, you are my glory. What does that mean? David was acknowledging, you are the one who placed me in this position. You are the one who anointed me as king of Israel. You finish what you have started. Whatever glory and honor that I possess that remains is a reflection of you, given by you, and will remain or be taken away by you. You are my glory. David says, you are the lifter of my head. In 2 Samuel 15, 30, we see that David was in so much shame and depression. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people that were with him covered their heads also. In the ancient world, kings would humiliate their enemies by putting their foot on the neck of a conquered king. It was the ultimate humiliation in a culture based on shame and honor to be helpless and vulnerable and shamefully beneath the sole of your enemy's foot. But David was echoing the idea of Psalm 2.6 and Psalm 27.6 and Psalm 110 verse 7 that God would exalt and lift up the head of the Messiah King, the anointed King. And David cries out to him. David believes in him. David knows that God will answer him. David knew that the one who sat on the holy hill of Zion was his King. It's a confidence not within David himself, but a confidence in God himself that He will keep those who are his from stumbling and from shame, according to Isaiah fifty four, four, Romans ten, eleven, Philippians one twenty. That he will avenge, according to Isaiah one twenty four. That he will enact justice, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.6-8. That God himself will justify sinners by faith through his Messiah, according to Romans 5.1. Amen? God is our confidence that humbles us because we know that it is not from us that we are saved, but through his Messiah, through his anointed king. What is salvation point number three? It's trust that sustains. Verses 5 through 6. This is an interesting verse, isn't it? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is writing as he is recalling God's sustaining provision after all this was over. You can read about the outcome of, his ep- of this epic story in 2 Samuel 18 through 19, but let me give you a clue. David lives to tell about this story and to write to us, to teach us about what salvation in God means. So how was David in the midst of a great depression, anxiety, fear, and in the midst of being pursued for his life by his son, unsure of who among even his entourage would betray him? How was it that David was able to sleep? As someone of an insomniac myself sometimes, David gives us the answer in these verses, doesn't he? What is the answer? for the Lord sustained me. That was his testimony. For those of us who struggle with insomnia due to anxiety and fear, I pray that these verses will be a fresh reminder that God grants sleep to those who trust in him. Amen? Trust that that God will uh, will sovereignly hold all things even as you sleep. He will care for you and take care of you and protect you and keep you as you rest in him. Listen to the changed disposition of David in verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is why the psalmist can declare in Psalm 118, verse 5 through 6, out of the distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And one commentator writes, to trust only when appearances are favorable is to sail only with the wind and tide, to believe only when we can see. Oh, let us follow the example of the psalmist and seek that unreservedness of faith which will enable us to trust God. Come what will and say as he said, I will not be afraid of a thousand people who have set themselves against me all around. Do you have this kind of faith, brothers and sisters, to know this confident assurance in our Lord Jesus Christ, in God our Savior and Lord? The psalmist goes on. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who struggle with anxiety and fear, especially in these divided, uncertain days about life and about future, about current circumstances, especially those who lose sleep because of anxiety, you let anxiety get the best of you. Psalm 3. Reminds us this afternoon to trust in the Lord, to trust in the Lord who sustains, who sustained his people for generations and he will sustain you, amen? Fourth and finally, what is salvation? It is victory that blesses. It is victory that blesses from verses seven through eight. Look at it now. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. David says, arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Did you notice? Are you guys with me? This is so good. Listen. Did you notice how God stands to save his own people? Whereas in Psalm 2-4, against his enemies, the Lord sits and mocks and laughs. God's enemies are no match for him but in order to save his people, God stands. God arises. David continues, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David's enemies were literally devouring him him like wild animals. But here's a picture of God rendering them justice, toothless, one-two punch in the mouth, no teeth left, you see. But the key to this entire psalm is in the final verse of Psalm 3. Look with me to Psalm verse, uh, 3, uh, chapter, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. How does David's personal struggles with his son, with his own sins, teach us about salvation in God? Psalm 3 is reminding us salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Charles Spurgeon says there is no more assuring verse than these words in the entire Bible, than this very phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope of all wicked sinners like you and me, that God is the author and finisher of our faith, that God will bring to completion what he has started in you and me, amen? How is this a blessing to all of us as people? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy and just, created all things in love for his own glory and for our own pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in ourselves and in the flesh and in the world and the devil. And we wanted to be a God unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word. And as a result, we were separated from God, completely helpless and incapable. Even the king, David, himself was incapable of saving himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin that was weighing him down to the ground. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem you and me and forgive us of our sins by sending us his own son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man to live the life that you and I could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we would have paid, we should have paid in eternal hell. But on the third day, friends, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that no more sacrifice is needed, which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. And whoever, whosoever, anyone, everyone who would believe in this truth and repent of your sins, all you have to do is acknowledge that, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. Yes, Lord, I am poor and needy. I need you. I need your help. All you have to do is cry out to him. And the Bible says, all who will call on me will be saved. So you get to participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth, now and forevermore. And until he returns on that final day, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed the savior of the world, we have the awesome, joyful privilege, brothers and sisters, friends, to gather with God's people who testify of this same reality, of this same confession. I am nothing yet Christ is all. Amen? Amen. This is the confession. This is the testimony of God's people that are gathered all over the city and all around the world today that I can't do it alone. It's impossible to do it alone. But God is with us and for us, and we are with you. Amen? Amen? Be reminded today, brothers and sisters, that salvation is in Jesus alone and that He will hold you and me to the end. He will hold us fast trust in him, believe in him, rely on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word, the true words of life and freedom. Father, this world sells us tons of lies. Sin stupefies and blinds and breaks us and traps us and enslaves us. But, Father, you are the only one compared to all the religions of this world. You are the only one who came for us. No other Savior, no other God came to man. Father, you took our place on the cross. For our sins, you died. Father, you didn't stay dead. You rose again. You rose again. You are alive. You are real. You are true. And that's the testimony of every believer in this building. So, Father, we do pray that this glorious gospel will not stay within the four walls of this building, that anyone here who do not know this truth, anyone here who is unsure of this truth will hear your words and be comforted, be assured. Father, please let them know that rejecting you, rejecting your grace, means they're going to live this life on their own and accept the consequences of their sins. And I do pray that they will not opt and choose judgment and eternal punishment over the grace and the mercy and the amazing abundance of life that is granted by you through your son, Jesus Christ. Hold us fast, we pray. Strengthen our faith, we pray. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name.